when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing what would be bad is for us not to fight back hey ho let's go this is 102.3 whivlp welcome to resistance radio my name is mark allendary and with me as always is somebody who uh i admittedly the two of us right before the show just said uh, uh if we didn't love each other uh, we may even uh, possibly uh, maybe stick uh little bamboo uh, threads underneath each what? other's nails what are you saying uh this what is resistance saying that it gets on my nerves but i'd love him anyway <laughs> this is resistance radio uh as with as always uh with me today although i did miss the show yesterday that was painful for me to do uh yeah. is kenny francis Survive Waterworld. yeah <laughs> Uh, which was actually a, a trippy movie when it was you a terrible movie. It was, it was like considered like I think it was like the biggest flop. Yeah, I think they spent like two hundred million dollars. Yeah, it was and like, like four was, people went to see it. Yeah, and it like was. Two like, it, it, and it's like I think it's considered a cult movie now. <laughs> I mean, I loved Waterworld. Everyone else just didn't. Um, this is a pre-record, as you can tell. Uh, we we're talking about the, the show that Kenny did, uh, which was um, yesterday, the twenty-eighth, I think, of August, twenty-sixth, twenty-sixth of August. Um, and uh, Kenny and I are taking the next two Mondays off, so we're pre-recording a couple shows in our big uh, education uh, series, uh, of which Kenny's. Uh, we're kind of opening up Kenny's brain and and uh, and uh, unloading it onto the table and letting us understand really the kind of the policy and the nitty gritty behind all things education in the state of Louisiana. And uh, as all things are, uh, it's complicated. It's sometimes not pretty, uh, but uh, I think that it's necessary. 
uh, if we believe in uh, things equity uh, and things and and how to make systems better, uh, the best thing to do is understand how complicated things are uh, rather than just being able to go in and kind of push a system over, which I know that I usually feel like I, I want to do, but recognize can't do. So, Kenny? Yeah. Um, so just to give us a little bit of grounding of where we are, where we've been and where we're going. So the we're doing this series on education and specifically talking about the school reforms that have happened in New Orleans since right before Hurricane Katrina's now. So if you go back and if this is the first one you're catching, I would recommend that you go back to the first part of the series. So the first hour of the series, I cover uh, with Mark Allen talking about the charter reforms that began starting with the original charter law that was written in Louisiana in 1995. And in that first hour, we go from 1995 up until right up until Katrina. And then the second hour, we talk about Act 35 um, and the firing of 4,000 teachers um, in New Orleans right after Katrina. And we talk about the period of Katrina up until conversations start to happen around what of what became known as the unification of New Orleans schools. Um, and then the part three, which I recorded on my own because Mark Allen couldn't make it because of the flood, I talked for that hour about Act 91, which was the state law that ordered the reunification of New Orleans schools by July 1st, 2018, and it also solidified a lot of the autonomy that was technically temporary before it made it permanent and put it in state law. Um, That's what Act 91 that was passed in 2016 did. And then the episode right before this one that you'll hear, um, we were joined by Amy Greener, who was one of the former administrators of OneApp, who came, who joined us for a conversation about school choice, about OneApp, about how the algorithm works, about what OneApp is trying to do, and about how it's trying to equitably distribute seats in the city, and about what it can solve for and what it can't solve for, and sort of the issues around that. And that was a really great conversation, and I want to thank Amy again for coming on and doing that with us. This episode, we're going to talk about looking forward. We're going to talk about, okay, so we've learned about how we got here from basically 1995 to the present and all the reforms that have happened and all of the laws that have been passed related to schools, specifically in New Orleans. And and we know what the system looks like right now. And what this episode is going to be is me sort of reflecting with Mark Allen about now that we know everything that we know together with this conversation we had over the course of this now the fifth episode what what now looking forward what are some ways that i think that we can make things better for the system to serve children and families better and then there's going to be one last piece of this um to the series we're going to do one more episode on this it's going to take us a while because we have to schedule it with her um i have a good friend and colleague at the louisiana budget project if you're unfamiliar with the louisiana budget project they are um, a nonprofit that does a lot of tax policy work and they do a lot of really, really great deep dives on tax policies and how to rewrite tax policy to make it better, to make investments in in our people in Louisiana better. And um, her name is Neva. Neva is one of, I would say, probably like three people in the state that understand MFP. MFP is the very, very complicated formula that we use to fund schools with a combination of local and state dollars. And I'm not even gonna try to briefly explain what MFP is, Because like I said, there's like three people in the state that understand it, and Neva is one of them, and we're so lucky that she's agreed to come on our future show and explain MFP to us. Um, And so that's where we've been, that's where we are now, and that's where we're going. So with that, I want to let us jump into today and what we're going to talk about. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about looking forward. So understanding, now that we have an understanding of where our system currently sits, 
what are some things that I think that we could do moving forward that would make this a system that's more equitable and that serves children's and family children and families better? Um, I want to start with two sort two sort of things. One, I want to address something that we haven't really been able to address in the previous episodes, where a big conversation in the charter school charter reform conversation is the amount of money that charter school leaders make. Much has been made about charter school leaders making six-figure salaries, um, especially when you compare it to the fact that teachers don't make any real money. Like the average teacher salary is like $40,000. And my response to that is that the conversation should be about the disparity between what the leaders are making and what the teachers are making. Because just like, and like the conversation you and I had off air, Mark Allen, just like most industries in America, we have this sort of unfair system where the people in charge typically make a whole lot more money than the people who are actually doing the work. The workers are doing the work every day. I think we're at an all-time high in the corporate world where uh, CEOs are making upwards to a thousand times more than uh, their employees. And it's not quite that bad in charter schools, but but it is. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it's not bad, right? It's the fact that you have teachers that are struggling to pay their rent. Right. And you have school leaders that are making six figures. That is a That's that a is problem. inequity. That's a problem. It's and, problematic. And let me ask you this: the um, that you know, I know that we discussed this off air. That it's less of a because you're going to go on to explain in a moment. And I don't certainly mean to steal your okay. thunder. You're going to go on to explain that this this is complicated work, and the and the salaries uh, paid are commiserate with the type of work and responsibilities that are that are there. But I, I think, you know, you and I kind of danced around this for a second was I think the conversation is, mo- you know, from my end that it's mostly of, well, I just wish teachers were paid more. Absolutely. And I think and I think for me, that's like the, the, the beginning and the end of it. Something that we said on our previous version on our, on our previous episode of this, the one that we the one that we did with Amy is I said that the thing that we're going to try to get trending, which is hug a teacher and oh, give right. him a hundred thousand dollar salary. <laughs> Hashtag because, hug like, a teacher. I don't. I. Th- I don't think that. Like. I think that it is a classic. Um, I think it's a classic trick of the of the super rich to have people like turn on each other. And I think the idea that we're out here saying that charter leaders who are principals and, and leaders of these schools should make less money is kind of ridiculous because no both teachers and leaders deserve to get paid salaries that that are commiserate with the value that they're adding for the work that they do agreed and the idea that we would lower someone's salary because someone else isn't making more that's all that's like that's what capitalism has done to us yes yes it's like no none of us are getting the value for our work because here's the reality about charter leaders what people don't realize as i've explained through the course of this series a charter school is a nonprofit in the way that you would think about any other nonprofit. And so my question to folks who question how much money charter leaders make is how much do you think a person who's running a nonprofit with several hundred employees should make? Like what is a fair salary for that level of responsibility? Because that is what a charter leader is. They're not just the principal. They're not just like popping into teachers' classrooms. They are running a nonprofit often that has several hundred employees. And how, and, how and, much money do you think someone should and make? Probably a several million dollar budget yeah, too, like, right? Like, They're like, responsible like charter for... schools, and, and, and this is not just charter schools. When it was traditional schools, if you have a school that has several hundred kids, no matter what kind of school it is, whether you're talking about charter school, traditional school, whatever, if you're a school that has several hundred kids in it, just by pure nature of the way 
per student funded makes, the budget that you're dealing with is in the millions of dollars. So my question is, if you need to have someone in charge of controlling that millions of dollars, it has autonomy over what happens to that millions of dollars of public funds, you're going to want someone who's qualified. You're going to want someone who's talented at that. You're going to want someone who's going to be able to make the tough decisions that you have to make to be fiduciary responsible with that public funds. So how much do you think that person should make to do that, right? Like, are you realistically going to get someone who's capable of doing that proficiently and well enough to justify giving them all this public money for like $50,000. Is, is that realistic? Are you gonna find someone who's gonna want that level of responsibility for that much money? And so again, I, I think that, and for me, it also touches upon this other idea that I really, really reject in American society, where we basically sit here and wonder why more of our most talented people don't go into public service or the nonprofit world where you're working, you're doing this like missioned aligned values based work. We wonder why our top graduates from schools don't go into it when we basically have this value in this country where you're only allowed to make money if you're working in the for profit sector. The idea that people should, that all nonprofit workers or all public workers should just be like basically living in poverty because you're doing it because you care about it is exactly why no one wants to do it. You want to know why no one wants to teach? It's because you don't pay them anything. You want to know why principals don't stick around? Because you don't want to pay them anything. Why, why, why does it happen that basically everyone in the public sector eventually goes, you know what? I did my time. I'm going to go to the private sector and collect the salary that's twice as much. I'm not going to be helping my community anyway, but I'm going to go make real money. I think this idea that like you have less value in the work you're doing because you're doing public sector work is kind of what's wrong with this country. That like the bankers who are just like robbing people blind with like bad financial policies, they make millions and millions of dollars and people are like, yeah, that's kind of screwed up that they're screwing people over, but people don't have a problem with the compensation. But like teachers- I have a problem with God, compensation. I, but, but you get my, you get my point though, yeah. is that like we have this belief that when you're doing public work, you shouldn't be making money while doing it. When right. I think that- then if that's the reality, then it's no surprise why we can't convince anyone to do that work. Right. And then and then you wonder why uh, the people who go into private work. So the, the equivalent in, in, in healthcare is like, you know, you have a doctor or a pharmacist or a nurse, or whatever, who flips over to pharma or who flips over to the insurance, you know, and they're always so defensive about their about their decision, you know, and I. I, you know, and I try to be very obviously very respectful. I mean, you know, at you know some of the most famous doctors, they were all were uni- like especially in the infectious diseases world, they all started off as university professors like me, and then you know yeah. a, a fraction of them yeah. flip over yeah. to pharma. And I get it; they're going to do five to seven years. They're going to make more than they'll have ever made. Uh, then they're going to retire on that stuff. I and mean, it, I, you know, and then we were talking earlier that people then, you know, lament that yeah. that process. And then people are like, oh, why well, did you do that? Well, because they're making a lot of money. So, I mean, I think another example to like not to beat a dead horse here because I think people are getting the point we're making. But like I have a friend who was a public defender who is now That's a great example. Who is yes. now in the great private example. sector of yes. law. And I yes. have another friend that gives them the fifth degree about yes. making that decision. And she's like. I amassed like $300,000 worth of loans going to law school and I came out of school and I was a public defender for five years making $40,000 a year, barely being able to pay my rent yeah. and make the minimum payments yeah. of my law school. Yeah. At the firm I work at now, I work less hours with more resources and I'm going to pay off my loans in like three years. Yeah, it's a hard and argument. And it's like, 
Yeah, and then we you... and then we're like, oh, you're a bad person because you left public defending. It's like, yeah. well, no, we should pay public defenders a real wage. There you go. Like there that's the go. thing. There we should go. actually pay public defenders for the very important thing that they're doing. And we had a very quick off-air conversation. That was another point that that uh, the Sanders bill yeah. was making with yeah. paying public defenders more. But we'll get into more of that. So later. I mean, so, and so yeah. that so that's For like sure. my note on like compensation around charter schools. And I do think that like the conversation about the gap between what leaders are making and teachers are making is very very real and ones that need to be had. But the one thing I reject is this idea that we should lower someone's salary. It's like, no, we should raise the salaries. Like yes. the reality here is that in America, labor like labor is not making enough money. Workers of all types are not making enough money except for a very, very, very small amount of people. And that's the thing we need to start to solve for is how do we stop get the money out from the Uber Uber rich and start paying people a like fair wage for right. the labor that they're for the skilled labor that they're providing. Well, we need teachers unions. We need yeah. unions and teachers yeah. unions. But if you're tuned in, you are listening to one two point three WHIVLP. This is Resistance Radio. Uh, this is Mark Alderi. With me, as always, is Kenny Francis, and we are talking about kind of the future of of education yeah. and kind of what best practices or what most equitable just, practices. Are I, I would be, and I want to be clear: these are all just my ideas. The, right. like, this is this is me thinking about the experiences I've had working in schools, working at the district level, and now being on sort of the advocacy side. Me thinking about what are the things that we can do, tangible things we can do to move forward. One of the things I want to address right off the bat is right now there's a, there's a lot of people saying this. There's a conversation going on about getting legislators running for the legislature to undo, to repeal Act 91 and, a base, and basically undo charter schools and get rid of the system. And that is something I want to say. It is my opinion that I think that would be a very bad idea. And here's why. I think that undo, that like, as I said on previous episode, what happened to this community was done in ways that was racist and and reform happened to this community rather than with this community. And I think a lot of the vitriol and pushback and um, trouble that has happened with our system is because we excluded the community from the process and from having any determination in it. And I think what has happened is what, hap- is what you see when you do that. However, I think we're in a system that kids are better off than they were pre-Katrina with the old corrupt system that was there. And undoing in totality the charter system that has been built is going to hurt the children. Because here's the reality, unless you have something better to replace it with, then basically what you're saying is let's get rid of this thing that was created and we don't really have an idea what we're gonna replace it with, but we're gonna figure it out. Well, part of what people have been against for the last 10 to 15 years is that they've been figuring it out as been going and i would say that like we already lost a whole generation of kids to us figuring out what this thing is going to be and us doing this experiment as many people call it this experiment and so your argument is that we should do another generation of experiment to figure out what we should do instead that unless you have a idea that is better than this one that we know works like another generation of experimentation of what sort of educational system we have is going to benefit kids. And a, an analogy that I want to give here is like 
Obamacare. Obamacare. Repeal and replace. Ob- Obamacare, Obamacare has a lot of faults to it. A it has lot. a lot of faults. It a maintains lot. the private exchanges. Like yep. uh, Mark it's Allen, still a Mark, Mark Allen could, could say it much better than I can. But at the end of the day, Obamacare is not even actually that progressive of an idea. It was, other Rom- than, it was Romney care. Other than the fact that it gave people who didn't have health care, health care. Like it, it was the only thing. It wasn't, it wasn't really a progressive idea. It was actually the Republican version of what healthcare would look like it and came, it's still very much a private system and it came from the heritage foundation exactly but at the same time you can't just get rid of obamacare because over 10 million people in this country got health care for the first time ever i think it was more than that a, yeah, million like millions millions of people in this country 30, i think 20 million people that many people in this country got health care for the first time is obamacare still a broken healthcare system yes yes but can we just take away healthcare no. from that many people because it's broken and not have something to replace it with? No. But the conversation there would be repeal and replace it with Medicare for all. Yes. Which would be a better system. Yes. But there is no equivalent in the education. I mean, there, there is an equivalent that. of Medicare for all in education. It's a it's a world where you're funding education well, we're getting there. at basically an unlimited level. Yes. Where you're funding it the way you fund the military. Right. But like <laughs> show me right? But real real talk. Real talk. What Obamacare what dream with me, meta, Kenny. Me, but, real, but that's my point, though. My point here is the only idea that people have that is better than what we currently have right now. Right. With giving our, our specific contents, the better idea, the Medicare for all idea right. in this scenario is an education system in which you are funding education on the level that we fund our military right now. Yeah. Is where you basically just switch the education and the military budgets and you give schools the unlimited resources they need to help the kids that need to be pushed that are that are performing higher, the kids in the middle and the kids that have this that have special needs and need more supports. The way the way that you actually create the Medicare for all type system for education is funding at the level of the military. And I haven't met a single person in my life that has come up with an idea of how to do that. And so for me to just like essentially repeal and not replace would leave another generation of kids of New Orleans getting experimented on. And that's part of what we're saying is wrong with the way that this was done in the first place. And, and the other thing, and, and uh, your point being very well taken, but the other thing that I think that's important to recognize is it is a shame. And it is a shame, shame, shame on America that we spend hardly anything on education and a whole lot on on military. Absolutely. That, and this is all because, and again, this is you know, this goes back to conversations that Kenny and I have that frustrate one another. But uh, this is just me keeping it real. I think this is this is part of the system is to give poor education because you keep people as workers rather than bringing them up as as leaders and potential influencers and changers. Uh, and then you also are able to fund the military because that's all private contractors and there's a lot of people that make money on that and I think when you take a big step away from you know you take a big you you look down onto America and see how we fund stuff it, you know, we talk about this all the time. We you talk about when we about budgets. You know, Dr. King says that a budget is is a more it's a moral, it's a moral docu- document. Moral yeah. document. And it, our that, country shows what our morals are. In fact, our, forget about the country. We can talk about the state. In the state of Louisiana, we spend six percent of our total budget on programs, including Medicaid and education, that that benefit children and families. And so that especially tells us, poor. So that that tells that tells us exactly what our morals are in our state, where children make up 25% 
of the population in, in Louisiana, and we spend 6% of the budget on supporting them. And that shows us where our morals are. So all the right to lifers who supposedly care about kids. <laughs> let's talk right. about that. Uh, what about how much is spent on uh, like I, I don't know the other prisons, or, but I, I know I know that. We but spend we know 6%. that in in New Orleans, isn't like sixty percent of the budget is on like police? Oh yes, between like the jail and the police in New yeah, Orleans, sixty yeah. percent of our budget is on is on that. And then and then, and then I think we spend like less than five percent combined on like affordable housing and like family it's services. Shameful. I know we're. I know we got a lot yeah. to talk about. So. so what you might be listening to says, okay, Kenny, well then like, what do we do instead? How do we actually make this better? And I actually have some ideas. Uh, I'm shocked. You so <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to cover five. Yeah. Five base, five sort of buckets. So the buckets I want to cover are like things I think that we can do to make the system better are the buckets are one charter autonomy, addressing some things in there Two teachers, three, the authorization process, the process by which we decide which schools open, et cetera. Um, four funding, and then the fifth one being the OPSB as an elected board. And can I just also make a point that what I think where we're driving at is is when we look into the future to try to make schools better, what we're saying is more equitable or yeah, like more equitable, we- more equitable in a system with better oversight. And a, and a system that is more reflecting of the needs of the population of the families that we're serving. And that will ultimately, hopefully, end up in better outcomes yeah. so that kids have better choices Absolutely. to and make I, and, and better and better opportunities for better futures. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I just let's, wanted to be clear so about let's that. Get, so let's, let's start with charter autonomy. So in the last episode, the one I did by myself, I explained... Uh, sorry, not the last episode. This was, this this would be episode number three. Sorry, and the one where I'm I'm doing by myself explaining Act ninety one. One of the things I talked about was LEA, the local education agencies, and how in our local context we've allowed each individual charter to be their own LEA. And as I explained in that episode, one 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 of the major things that happens with that is when you're your own LEA, you have responsibility for and get the federal funding. For special education. And as I explained in that episode, I think that one of the things that we've done wrong um, that has been a bad idea is that we decentralize the special education evaluation and service provision process. And we are not able to act to adequately assure the quality of such an essential service. I would argue that special education evaluation and the service provision to kids that qualifies for special education needs is probably the most like elemental part of education. And it is so, 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 so important to equity and to having kids getting what they need. And by having everyone having to have the expertise to do the evaluation process and the servicing process on their own and co- or contracting that out, we have not, we're not able to ensure the quality of the evaluation process or the services. I don't think that schools should have autonomy over that. I think that that should be a centralized function where the, the where we as a parish find the best experts that we can to do the evaluation and the service provision and not leave it up to like 70 different little entities to try to figure that out. Because for one, one of the things that you need in that process is things like child psychiatrists and psychologists. And we and as a doctor, you know, we don't have enough of those in Louisiana. Right. And let me ask you this. Is there a potential incentive to... Uh, possibly, you know, where bias may have a role here where you may not see a special needs kid to be as needy as maybe they really are yeah. so that this way schools are not uh, providing services that could potentially cost them more money. Yeah, they're, they're, and, and, and would you say that's a, is that a, is that a pro, how much of a problem in the grand I think, scheme? I think, the, I think the greater problem is the lack of expertise 
Okay. I think special so education school is responsible for like, getting their own person. Spe- or, yeah. Or, you, yeah. Every school is responsible for doing their own evaluation process and then also figuring out how to provide the services once the kid is deemed to be um, qualified for services. And that is a problem. There is not enough expertise to go around on that, which is why I know that there are some really bad examples out there of like bad actors, et cetera, et cetera. But much more often, it is a lack of expertise because at the end of the special education is a highly specialized thing. And it's got the word special in it. it but it, it's a highly specialized skill. Yeah. And, 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 and to think that 70 different entities, 70 plus different entities can find high quality versions no, of that. Yeah, it's, like it's hard to find that when you when you're a central district and you're looking for like a centralized version of that. It's hard enough to do that. Like Louisiana is not great with special education as it is. The idea that 70 plus of your entities are going to find special education teams that have this level of expertise for the type of money that we're able to pay people in schools is kind of crazy. It's not surprising that the quality is not great when it comes to the, our evaluation processes and the servicing. And I think that it is too important of a service to, to, to decentralize. For example, it'd be as if the mayor was like, you know what, instead of having a fire department... We're gonna have like seventy-five mini fire departments in every in every neighborhood, and everyone's gonna figure out how to put the fires out on their own. No, right? No, right, you would right. never do that. And that's basically uh, unless what you we've wanted done. a unless you wanted unless you want the city to burn the disco. Like, and that's the <laughs> argument that we, I was kind of making off air, but this is kind of this is a feature, not a. And so and so and so one of the things that I would do is I would revoke the LEA the independent LEA. Who can do that? Um, that would have to come from the state. That would be a that would be a state change. Oh, actually, no. The OPSB could do that. The one of the powers that OPSB has, and technically the superintendent, is that so Dr. you can. Lewis can the do Dr. This. Lewis could revoke the LEA, the independent LEA statuses of charters, and put them back in one. I'm surprised LEA with that, OPSB. that parents of uh, special needs kids have people just don't know this stuff. This is why we're doing the show. Okay, <laughs> it's like fair, fair half enough. the stuff we've talked fair about, enough. people don't have any idea about. Fair it. enough. Fair like enough. the school board could revoke the independent LEA statuses of charters and put them all back in the OPSB LEA and centralize that function. They could do that. Um, the schools would fight it for a lot of really obvious reasons. But like it could legally be done by the board. I, I see that as being a potential, like not only meeting people where they are, but as a way to really bring up uh, uh, no. equity and, and 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 yeah. Let me do this real quickly. Station ID. If you're tuned in, this is one hundred two point three WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Calendari. Kenny Francis over there, and we are on our fourth or fifth episode. This of one's the, number five. The number five, and we're talking uh, on education, and specifically, Kenny's just giving us our thoughts about ways of making. Making education in New Orleans or even Louisiana a, a more equitable process, allowing kids to be more successful in their uh, in their futures. The second thing I would do regarding charter autonomy is I would centralize transportation. I think the way yeah, I talked, talked about, about in that, that last episode last about right. how transportation is causing a lot of money because it is also quality assurance issues. Because every charter is independently contracting out with bus providers for it's their the own It's the same charter. thing as LEA. It's, it's similar. It's very yeah, similar. similar. And, and can I just make a very yeah. clarifying point? When you say charter autonomy, what we're, I think what you're saying is the charters are autonomous in lots of different ways. Yes. And what, you're, what I think you're kind of saying is let's centralize a couple of elements. Yes. I mean, the, like the, the thesis of my, of my argument on charter autonomy is that we've given 
too much too autonomy much, yes, to charters. Yes, yes. And there are some things for either quality assurances uh, reasons or um, efficiencies, like financial efficiencies, economies of scale that should be centralized so that the system can run efficiently. And then there are things I do believe very strongly that charters should have complete autonomy over. So one of the things that I think that we need to centralize is busing. This whole everyone doing their own busing thing, it's just not working. Kids are riding on the bus too long. It's really hard. The routes are really long and it's really expensive. Schools are spending like over 10% of their budget on just getting kids to school, to and from school every day. Like that's a lot of money and the bus companies are making money hand over fist because they know you have to provide the service. And so they're saying, here's the rate, deal with it. You don't have any collective bargaining power. But if the district centralized Busing, the district could say, if you want a contract with Orleans Parish, here's the quality of buses and services that we need. You got to have an app for parents. You got to have, you know, um, AC on every one of your buses. You got to have a monitor every bus. And here's the price we're willing to pay. And you can bargain that way because you're bargaining as a district, like other districts in the state do, so you can keep the cost down and also ensure quality. The other thing is in a system of choice where you have centralized buses, you could do bus sharing where kids share buses depending on where you live and not on what school you go to. So you can imagine there are buses that go to Mishu, which is a neighborhood out in the east, that pick kids up from the same neighborhood to go to like seven different schools. Those kids could ride the same bus and just get dropped off at the school that they go to, but because every school is contracting their own buses, like you literally have buses from like five different schools going to the same neighborhoods, picking up a kid because the kid goes to a different school. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, ridiculous. It's inefficient in yeah. a lot of really ridiculous ways. And one of the things that you said last night when, again, this episode is being pre-recorded, so it was last night when, when Kenny said this when I couldn't be uh, at the studio, um, was I was stunned with the fact that some buses don't have air conditioning and oh, you yeah. just mentioned it yeah. just now. There's no, there's, there's no incentive. There's no incentive. What incentive does them? Apple bus company or any of the other bus companies have to provide a better service? Right. There is none. And so... Because what are you going to do? Not provide buses and get in trouble for not providing busing? Right. And a 10% of your budget is an enormous yes, amount of your budget. Is. I mean, yes, you could pay is. more teachers. You know, yeah. you could give raises. Yeah. You could... You could hire more teachers and right. provide better services. Right, right. Um, and so, like, I think busing just has to be centralized. Like, it doesn't make any sense to do it the way we're doing it. It's so expensive and so inefficient, and we're, we can't ensure quality, and it's a problem. Um, and like I said, paying that kind of money out for buses, is, it's, it's, it can't it's continue. It's ridiculous. Um, and then the third thing I want to say about charter autonomy is that I feel very, very strongly that we need to preserve charter autonomy when it comes to deciding what they do with their budgets with their staffing, with their curriculum, and their programmatic, programmatic scheduling. So essentially, the day-to-day operations of a school should be in control of the principal and the people on that campus. But within some regulatory framework, obviously. It, it is right now. Right, okay. It is okay. right now. Like, there right. is a regulatory I mean, there's framework. No, it's, not, it's not a Wild West sort of thing. No. Yeah, yeah. And it's never been. Right. Like, you, th- like, there's always been rules about the budget. Like, for example, a little-known rule, a state law that has been in... in um, in effect, the whole time that charters have been in existence is that you must, by law, spend at least 75% of your total budget on instructional things like teachers, training, curriculum, etc. That's been the state law like forever. So it's not like, oh, you could just like spend like 10% of your budget on that. Like you have to spend. Le- so there are. Well, these I mean, legal that's par- good because these are public money. There are these. But I'm saying there, these legal parameters already sure, exist. Sure, sure. The idea that a centralized office knows what the individual needs of schools all across the community need is it that that's what I don't agree with 
that's where in traditional districts where you get these basically edicts that come down from up on high from people who don't even visit your school and say, hey, everyone's going to focus on this this year because this is what we as a district side. That's not how you teach children. Teaching children is about differentiating and making sure that different kids with different needs get what they need. So Esperanza, a school with a very large ELL population, doesn't need this. Doesn't What's ELL? ELL's uh, English language learners, so kids who are learning um, English as their second language. That school, compared to a school that's like all kids who speak English, they don't need the same thing. Those two different groups of kids need different things. Those two different families need different things. And the principals and the teachers in those buildings should be the one, the one as the ones who work with them every day, need to decide what is best for them programmatically, the way you spend your budget to like push around resources in your school, what curriculum you're gonna do. Because again, the, the kids that are learning English as a second language, I would argue curriculum-wise, they should have different things than kids where English is their first language. Because like culturally, that needs to be different. It needs to be cultural relevancy to your curriculum. And so I believe very strongly that the day-to-day operations of staffing, curriculum, like your schedule, your pro, what, what programs you offer, your budgeting on a, on a, on a school-based level, that should 100% be in the hands of the principal and the teachers at the school because those are the people who know what's best. To give a really easy analogy of that that you're going to understand is as a doctor who runs your own clinic, imagine if there's this greater entity that told you that, hey, right now we're focusing on this specific kind of care for for um for for diabetics patients, for diabetics and i don't even see and diabetics. Like, i don't even have diabetics right. and it's like we don't care you're <laughs> right. doing it this is the policy this is a district right. policy right that's essentially or with the staffing side of it imagine if you were like, if you're like as the, if, if they were like as a hospital we are focusing on diabetic care and so we're gonna we're gonna make you use half of your budget to hire these three diabetes doctors and you're like i don't even have any diabetes diabetes patients they're like too bad everyone's doing it that's what like working in a traditional district can be like is like they can force you to just take people on because right. it's like this is what the district's doing and so i believe that principals I, should have that power at a local level and you know and when you and i first met and, and i think a large part of this stuff came out of my ignorance and not understanding how and it was easy for me just to make a very easy statement to say i don't like charter schools or charter schools are bad or whatever and, and over the course of the years that you and i have been talking and of course over the course of this very intensive uh, uh five series or six series uh that we've done on this i've learned a lot and uh, and you've convinced me to understand how charter schools are useful but there is one pushback i will make and that is that the teacher unions were destroyed that's well, the, let's, let's, and I know we're going to get to yeah, that, but I just, I just, even though, yes, I agree with you. I yeah. do agree with everything that you have said in the past and that you've said tonight. I just am like, the one thing that I'm holding on to is that teacher unions were destroyed and yeah. that's just and a let's, thing. And, let's talk about that. So let's talk okay. about teachers. So blanket statement, teachers should get paid more. Blanket statement. Right. Hug As, a teacher, hug, pay her a hundred, hug a teacher pay, and, and give them a hundred thousand dollar salary. Do that. Outside of that, I think that's something that, um, I think that it, that it was wrong that the union was killed. I think it was wrong that those teachers were fired, and I think that it created a discord within the teaching population that it continues to this day that like stops organizing from happening because you have one set of teachers who hate another set of teachers, and it's and like the, the young kids who came in weren't the ones who did that. Um, every but it's still a perfect every, opportunity every, every, to yeah, get people bickering against one another. Every profession needs veterans and newbies because at some at some point you got to replace people, um, and also I do believe that like. You need to put quality people in front of kids, whether it's someone in their third year or their 30th year. Like the person who is teaching the kids better should be in front of the kids. Um, and so when it comes to teachers, I think something that 
should happen is that our community should advocate and put pressure on charters to allow their teachers to unionize at a local school level and to collectively bargain with the administration. And several schools have done that. Notably, Ben Franklin High School, their teachers unionized. Coghill, a school in New Orleans East, those teachers are unionized. And Morris Jeff, a school in Mid-City, those teachers unionized. And at a local school level, those teachers have a union, they have representation, and they collectively bargain with their school administration for things like salary, benefits, like how long your break periods are, etc. Would would you say, or can you say, let me ask you this, can you say um, that that led to salary increases or... I mean, I don't don't know know? because I haven't worked at any of those schools, so I I won't speak on behalf of those teachers. What I do know is that those three schools have unions that they recognize, that they've bargained with. And I think one of the ways to get teachers better benefits and better salaries and better working conditions is to allow them to organize yes. at a local school level yes. and to and to negotiate with the administration. Because I think one of my questions about like a big citywide teacher union is again the need, the individual needs. Who's to say that one group of teachers at one school wants the same thing at another group of teachers at another school? One group of teachers might want better pay. Another group of teachers says, actually, what we want is a better benefits package. A third group of teachers might say, actually, we want you to spend money on professional development. Another group, like it, I think that the people working at the workplace should collectively bargain with the people that they're working for. And so I am 1,000% in support of that. And I think that we should put pressure on charters to bargain with to collectively bargain with their teachers on the individual school level the same way that Ben Franklin High School and Morris Jeff and Coghill has. I think if every school in this city had unionized teachers at the local level that collectively bargained with the administration, the qual- teacher quality of life and the quality of profession and retention would be better, would be a lot better than it is. Which would ultimately flow down to better Which outcomes ultimately, for kids. Exactly. Yes. And, and so I, that's a huge thing that I think that should and needs to happen. I will say this. I think one of the reasons why the U.S. healthcare system is so bad is that doctors never unionized. And there was a move in the 60s to try to get doctors to unionize. And quite frankly, they saw beneath, they, they saw themselves, that generation of doctors saw themselves as uh, being above Unions, you know, blue collar workers were unionized, you know, not not white collar workers like doctors. And I think that was the reason why we are in the position that we're in, because doctors would have not allowed for the basic corporate takeover of healthcare if they were unionized. And I, I would argue that if teachers are not unionized again, that we could see a similar situation I happen. I disagree. Um, we got three more big things I want to talk about, so gonna, and we're starting to get in the last 15 minutes here, so I want to push this forward. Um, and one more time, obviously, pay teachers more. Hug a teacher and give them $100,000 salary. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is the authorization process. So the process through which we decide which schools open and close, etc. cetera. Um, one thing that I think we need to do is that the district, at the district level, has the decision, the ability to decide what the authorizing priorities are. That means that when the district is running the RFA process, which is the process that they, it means request for applications. They put out this document that says, here's the type of schools that we're looking for people to submit applications to start. I think that we need to change our authorizing priorities to give families actual choice. Because one of the things that was supposed to be true about the charter school system is that it was supposed to encourage innovative ideas that gave families different kinds of choices. And what we got was a whole lot of schools that look exactly the same. And I get that because like kids needed 
um, the type of supports that a lot of these schools give. But like, let's be super frank about this. In this city, I would say a good like forty five of the seventy something schools, if not more, are sort of different branding of the same sort of mini test prep type of school. And my question is, how many test prep schools do we need in a city? Hold on. So for people who don't have kids or don't know, what, what does that mean? Like, so it's just like your basic, like you, you prepare kids for the test and they you try to get them to do well on the test. And there isn't any sort of like specific, like programmatic focus other than we want these kids to do really well with reading and math and science and, and, and social studies. Is this what they call teaching to the test? I mean, I think that's a no. I okay. don't think that's a good way all right, to put it. All right, then what I about say, like the MCAT, like or the MCAT classes? Just, what I'm saying is just like a basic school. It's just like a basic school where you just learn reading, writing, a myth, arithmetic, and they try to support the kids that are behind as best as they can. Right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that school. I'm saying the system of choice. How many of that do? You, how many of those do you actually need? The idea of a system of choice was actually a different idea. It was supposed to be encouraging actually different ideas. So, for example. There is a school, there's a high school in this city called Rooted School. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying giving any sort of evaluation of the school. I'm just saying that this is one that's actually different. They, What they're doing there is actually different. It's a school that is based in computer software and high school students learning computer programming and graphic design and those types of like coding jobs that are the jobs of the approaching now. It's not even, can't even say the future anymore. Those are the jobs of now. Those are like the jobs that are being created. That's an actual different model of what a high school looks like because those kids at that school aren't like sitting there getting like, you know, AP U.S. history taught to them by a teacher in front of the room the way you would in any other high school. Those kids are doing like project based work, working towards a, a technical assessment so that they can have a certification in, in um, graphic design that they could use to get a job out of high school or go to college. That's an actually different idea. And, and then I think Plessy is a school that has like an arts based uh, and 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 things like that. Like one of the things is like, how do we live in New Orleans and not have a music school with all these schools that are open? Is Noka? I mean, Noka is Noka is technically, but Noka is different. Noka was created by the Louisiana Legislature, and anyone in this in this state can go to it. And as long as you pass the um, the audition, you can get in. But that's different. That's a right. one. But like, how do we not have an open enrollment music school in yeah. a place like New Orleans? Yeah. How has how has that not been one of the options that come? And so like, I think one of the things that needs to change the district has to change its authorizing priorities and say, stop bringing me the same idea that fifty people have already done. You need to bring me if you want a charter, give me an option that is actually different, so that parents look at this and say, oh. That's something different. My kid's interested in that. Let's give that a try. That's what choice would actually look like. That's a big... Actually different options. Let me, let me do this. If you're tuned in, this is 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allen Derry. This is Kenny Francis, and we're talking about education. This is the fifth part of our series, looking at the future of education. Let me, without... I know we're in the last 15 minutes, just without getting derailed. Isn't that hard to kind of assess to a certain degree? Like, what if you have more people who want to do that traditional prep school thing or whatever like reading you know and not a lot of kids want to go into you know an arts based or i mean how many different how do options we know you, though right that's what well, how that's, do we know that's what i'm saying it's the options. got it okay like because at the end of the day this is a market as amy explained this is a market-based system 
And what we have is a market with mostly the same choices. So we don't know right. what families right. would want because they don't have different options. And as I said, when they, they have variations of the same option. And I just want to be clear that that I am so fundamentally and ethically opposed to a system in education I, yeah, rooted in I get, the market. I, but I'm saying that I if know, this is a system we have, I hear you, I hear give you. families actually different options. Um, the other thing I would change about the authorizing process is that I don't think we should close schools. I don't think we should close schools outright. The idea of a school going away, I don't think we should do that. I think that it is too traumatic and too disrupting to a community of, of students. If a school fails and is not making the grade, you get rid of the people operating the school and you bring someone in. This And so what that we would make, call transformation. Sense, right? So like... There's a bunch of examples recently that has happened sure, some where a school that has failed and then another operator has been brought in to take it over. I think that transformation should be what we do. And in situations, and the re- part of the reason why closures happen is there are situations where there isn't anyone to take the school. I think that that's OPSB's, I think that's OPSB's responsibility. I think that OPSB as the district should be prepared to take over a school that has failed and that there isn't another operator available to run it. I think that that, so the district should be what I would call receivership, where a school fails, there isn't another operator to come in and take over the school and run it, then the district should run that school either until someone else can run it or indefinitely. Didn't they, did that happen in the East at one, like last year? So we did it, the the district did it with, has done it recently with a couple of schools, but it's been temporary things and those schools were either closed outright eventually or given to someone else. But I'm saying that like, that has sort of been special situations and I think that that needs to be the policy. So let me ask you this. So are you saying then, this is splitting hair, but let's say we have a, a school named X. Mm. So let's say school X goes, is, is an F school. It's an F school, and okay, bad. and it's bad. Are you saying that a school named Z can't come and take over it? Or you're saying that school name, that school X should just never shut down and it gets new people? Or I'm, that- I'm saying that the school that is failing, one of two things should happen. Either... Someone else comes in and takes over the school, like a, and like they another, run it. like another, another organization, charter, another yeah. chart, or that people get fired and they the same the school holds its name as school oh, no, no, X. No, 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 that's not oh, what I'm saying. Got it. Okay. I'm saying that the two things that should happen when a school fails, in my view, to, that is the least disruptive to got the it. community. I understand. And the kids, I understand. Is that yeah. either a new charter operator comes in or the district takes it over? Right. Closing schools outright, but, in my opinion, is too disruptive. Right, right. But just to be clear, the the new operator that comes in will come in with their own new philosophy. Yeah. They come in with their own, yeah. as opposed to allowing the school to remain intact. Fire like the all the yeah, the, all the CEO that didn't make the grade, yeah. right? But the the school philosophy still remains intact. Let's say you had an art school and then a math school comes in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it it depends on what you're offering. It doesn't, got it. it. Okay, got um, it. Got it. Got it. So I, that's what got, I would change about on. the authorizing process. We have right. like five minutes left, so I'm going to try to speed through the rest of this. Um, this part is actually easy to speed through funding because it's simple. We need more money. Simply. When Reva, when Neva comes on and she explains MFP, the reality of it is the state's probably not going to give us more money. So we locally need to raise more money so that we can have a higher per student funding for our kids and so that we can pay teachers higher salaries and so that we can provide better professional development and better teacher training programs. And most importantly, the single biggest need in our system right now is that we have all these kids with trauma and behavioral and mental issues and we don't have enough resources in schools. In the 60s, when IDA passed, we decided IDA. IDA is the federal law that created special education funding at a federal level. And before that, schools didn't have to provide special education services. And we decided Oof. that 
as a country that special education services needed to happen in a school situation. Before the school food program passed in the 90s, I believe it was the 90s, it wasn't required that schools would give kids all the meals that they give them today. And then we decided that a school is a place where a kid's going to, particularly in a poor context, where a kid's going to get all of their nutrition. We are living in a reality where whether we like it or not, because of the state of the way the rest of our society is, our schools have become our community mental health centers. But they don't have the resources for it. And they don't have the expertise on campus for it. So you have people who are under-resourced and don't have the support dealing with mental health issues and behavioral health issues that they just don't have the ability to deal with and they don't have the funding to. And so it's time we started funding our schools to the reality that our schools are our community mental health centers and they need to be given the resources and the expertise to actually do that and provide that because it's the reality we're living in. I mean, it's kind of like the way that jails are are where uh, or the most adults are that have mental health issues. And obviously, the, the the ideal would be that everyone could get access to quality mental health of care, course. but that's that's not where we're living. So we need to meet the kids where they are, which is the essence of education, meeting the kids where they are. And where they are is kids need mental behavioral health services and the resources on school campuses so that teachers can actually teach and not try to be a psychiatrist while teaching. And then real quick, I, I would imagine one that would help decrease the school to prison pipeline. Yes. And then two is MFA have something. Is it MFA? My MFP. Saying? MFP. What does it stand for? Uh, the minimum funding program. So is that where taxes are, where, where property? Neva, we're going to let Neva explain that because okay. it's very complicated. Okay. The last thing before we go, and this is probably like everything I just said, I don't think much of it is like super con- controversial, but this last thing is what um, I think some people would think very con- controversial. I said in the last in the episode I did by myself that I think it's kind of ridiculous that there aren't any qualifications besides that you live in a specific district and you paid your taxes and you can raise the fundraising to get elected. For the school board, I don't think that we should have school boards that have people that don't have that don't have to have any sort of professional qualifications in education that can decide educational policy. And so, the way that I would change the elected board for our school boards is I would put a qualification in there that you have to be a current or past educator, either a teacher, a principal, vice principal, dean, sped coordinator, something. You had to have worked in education and have an understanding of what is actually happening in schools. Why is that controversial? To run for that office. Why is because, that controversial? Because I'm right now saying a whole lot of politicians who use the school board as a stepping stone uh-huh. to get the city council and the state legislature. Yeah, I got a lot of those people would not be able to do that right. because the school board races are typically designed by hundreds of votes. And it's relatively easy because people don't pay attention to these votes. But like, if you had to actually go work in a school before you did that... It's not quite easy of a stepping stone to get to the city council or to the state legislature. It's not this like easy thing you get to do. And and my thing is that, like I said, I don't think that non-educators should be in charge of education policy. In the same way, I don't think that non-doctors or healthcare yes. professionals should be in charge of healthcare policy yes. and so on well, and so forth. We see this all the time that politicians make health policy. I mean, for example, the politicians that are taking uh, reproductive rights away are all mostly white men, right? We saw that meme where it was all white men mm-hmm. that passed some of these laws and uh, they were certainly not doctors, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, we we got five minutes. Yeah, yeah, these weren't doctors, uh, and these uh, certainly were not yeah. uh, uh, people I, that were. There was no women there. Uh, in and fact, so, I, 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 but pulled, that defines America. In fact, I pulled this up because I wanted to know, and like I pulled up literally the by the Secretary of State, like legally what the qualifications are to run for the school for any school board in the state, and basically the qualifications are that you're over eighteen. 
Uh, you reside in Louisiana in the the district that you're running for for the last two years, um, and that you should be able to read and write. That's that's literally in there, um, and that's basically so you, it. You know what it is to be the assessor, and there's it? and there's and then then there's then there's things in there about term limits, but then there's carve outs for specific um, parishes that have gotten different term limits. And if you're and and here's the thing: in order to change the qualifications and add qualifications to be on local school boards or even just our local school board, it would take a change in state law. Okay. And arguably, in order to get something like that passed, it would have to be a state law for only Orleans because I don't think the other school boards across the state would want that. But I think we have a lot of experience making laws at the state level for just Orleans Parish. Which is how this in whole fact, conversation started. I, I think we've spent a good four hours <laughs> right. already talking about laws at way. the state level that have been passed for just Orleans Parish. So we could pretty easily, logically, pass a law for just Orleans Parish that says, if you want to be on our school board and you want to decide education policy for the city of New Orleans, you have to have been an educational professional at some point. I, I think w early on in Resistance Radio, we were having a conversation, and I, I, I think it was on air, where I think you were kind of grading the attendance policy mm -hmm. of previous uh, mm -hmm. uh, board members, mm -hmm. and especially those that had never had any education yeah. experience. There was a board member. It's not a, current, not a current one. There was a board member in the past, in the past 10 years, who had no education experience whatsoever, and he was just like a person that was well known in the community. He was able to raise enough money to like get you know mailers out and do the whole election thing and get elected. And he got on the board, and he missed like forty percent of the meetings yeah, over the course of his term. Right, which and in, then in, 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 he in, turned around and tried to run for a higher office. Right, and then in in education policy, or if you take forty percent, that's really sixty percent that he was there, uh, and sixty percent in a grade would be an F. Yeah. <laughs> and and so for me it's like that's what I would example. for me that's what I would change I would I would make qualifications for getting elected to the board um, because like I don't think those people should be deciding education policy unless you actually know what's going on in schools. Okay, let me ask you this: if if let's say you were to wave a magic wand yeah. uh, and have Dr. Lewis like or yourself, let's say, uh, is would the superintendent? Let me re-ask this question: yeah. Would the superintendent be able to? pass all of the policies that you have you've just so actually here's the other i had two ideas for this the one idea was to make qualifications for the board my second idea and this is a crazy idea because it would never happen because it would require the board that has power giving up their own power i would get rid of opsb as a separately elected board i wouldn't get rid of the entity i would get rid of the seven elected positions that we elect separately so from the mayor and the council underneath and i would put schools under the mayor's office, just like the fire department, just like the police department. Because like, think about it this way. When, the, when a mayor comes in, the mayor hires a fire chief who is a professional that has been working in that profession for a long time. And then they hire an administration that administrates that city um, department. And the democratic process is that if you don't like the decisions that the police department or the fire department's main, making, you fire the mayor by by electing a different mayor. That's the democratic part of the process. I don't think inserting another election into this with no real qualifications for those positions benefits schools. I would put the schools under the mayor's office and the mayor appoints a, a, a professional superintendent the same way she appoints the police chief, the same way she appoints the fire chief. And if you don't like the job that the superintendent's doing, you pressure the mayor to get rid of the person or you get rid of the mayor. That's what I would do. That's what the that's a magic wand that I would wave. But again, that'll never happen because that would take 
this board, this separate board of elected people giving up the power that they've been. And it's not just like power over schools. Remember, the OPSB elected board has the power to levy taxes. So it would be a group of elected officials giving up their power to like collect money from the public. It'll never happen. But that's the, the magic wand that I would wave. And could the superintendent do this? Could the, no. No. You don't think he to could get, he could, to he get can, rid of the board? He could shut would, it down and then put himself. I no, mean, he could not do that. He's not that kind of power. Okay. Like that would be like a state level. Actually, I need to look into that. What that? I think that would that would definitely be a state level thing because you're eliminating a tax. Because, I mean, a taxing authority. So that um, would be a state level thing. Professor Lessinger, I think from Harvard, was running for president in the previous cycle and was going to do one thing. He was going to go into office. He was going to take money out of politics and then he was going to resign. What if you had somebody who ran for or became a superintendent just to be able to take the whole thing? And I mean, I, but again, I don't. I don't think the superintendent 30, doesn't have, have thirty seconds. The left. superintendent doesn't have that kind of power. But I get your point. Like, if I mean, the governor could do that, right? right. Um, and so yeah, that's watch Governor Rizone do, respond to that. <laughs> and so okay, so that's so that's where we're gonna have to leave off. Seconds. We have like twenty seconds left. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank for you this. guys. Um, thank you, Kenny, now, for doing all the research like and, five and educating series. this. We have one more part to the series we're Ten gonna seconds. do. Um, we're gonna have Neva from the Louisiana Budget Project come and talk to us about MFP and how funding's going. Um, and we'll see you next time. On thank Resistance you guys. Radio.